Welcome to the episode of Securing Your Cyber Future, the core podcast that provides expert insights on cybersecurity strategies, especially when facing maybe strong economic headwinds, uh, maybe tech that's been purchased that wasn't your idea, uh, budget cuts, or maybe limited resources. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the art of acquiring budget for cybersecurity, dealing with how you can use it to the best, and most importantly, considering what is the priority of the business. I'm delighted to be joined by Lee Morton. Um, he is a great speaker. You may have seen him at a lot of um, events. Um, and he used to work for On The Beach and a huge amount of big other companies where he has been in control of the cybersecurity team, budget, technology and processes. So I hope you really enjoy. Welcome to the episode of The Core and today we're fo- focusing on securing your cyber future. Um, we hope that this episode offers expert insights and some strategies but I'm really excited to introduce Lee Morton onto the podcast. Um, Lee, I think it's been a long time trying to get you on because you're far too busy um, but Lee, thank you so much for joining. For anyone that's listening that doesn't know you, could you give us a quick windswept tour of you, your career and also some out-of-activity curriculum activities that you've just mentioned that I think other people would like to know about. Yeah, by all means. Uh, so, yeah, I've been working in security now for 20-odd years, doing different kind of roles, been head of security at different companies, including a £2.3 billion company, uh, also global multinational, and also doing uh, working at an uh, online travel agent mm. in the last 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I was a mechanical engineer, so that's how I started started okay. off as a career. Used to work on the big industrial machines as a CNC programmer, and then moved from that into civil engineering. So a total change mm. because I could do drawings, and then somebody decided it was a good idea to uh, say we need to build a new network, and CAD was the forefront of all those networking. So as a result, I ended up moving gradually into IT, and then eventually from IT moved into security. So, so yeah, it's been a gradual progression to get where I wanted to be. So I wanted to be in security a long time ago. I wanted to be a policeman when I was a kid. Because if you yeah. ever meet me, you'd understand. If you ever meet me, you'd understand why. Uh, <laughs> I, used to, I, I used to be six foot eight. Uh, ages caught shrunk me down to just about six foot six and a half now. But I didn't yeah, know that's Do we shrink? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I think I think it's more damage from the extracurricular activities that you mentioned before. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was going to say, was so, I going to be like an absolute Smurf by the time I'm in my nineties <laughs> <laughs> to put me in your pocket? <laughs> yeah. So as I'm saying, I played rugby. Uh, so I played uh, all over the UK, mm. uh, all amateur, but I also played in Ibiza. In a a tennis tournament a few years back. And currently, I'm also coaching American football, which I play for Great Britain and England. And I've been playing since I was 13. So I'm now coaching for a local team called Rosendale Bucks. And I'm their offensive coordinator. And those are where I've got the injuries. That has meant my my knees have not really (laughs) gone straight. And they're all damaged. And as a result, I've shrunk. So, yeah. So... how did you get into American football? Because obviously you were in rugby. What, how did you do the switch? Because it's not quite the same, is it? No, it's not. And it was only two years after I started playing rugby. I started mm. playing rugby when I was 11. Um, and then at the time I reached 13, there was a lot of te- uh, teacher strikes. 
And okay. as a result, I was playing rugby, I was playing cricket, I was playing football, and all the teachers just like, we're not doing any extra activities, no sports clubs, no nothing. Mm. And it was like, well, what would do? One of the one of my mates had went over to America, and went over to Florida, to Disneyland, and came back with American football. Oh. It was like, we started throwing that around, and then I found a team, we started playing, and eventually moved into adults, played adult American football for the local town, and then carried on from there. So it was a, just a progression because the teacher on strike. You have mm. to find a way to enjoy yourself. And me and my mates decided to do American football. I think it's great that you continue doing sport into your adult life because we've talked to similar people in your role and your position in cybersecurity. I think it's quite um, openly talked about that. It's quite. It can be quite a stressful job at times. It's 24-7. Um, it's a high-level burnout in this industry do you think keeping the sports and that team morale and that i guess that kind of different outlook a relief stressor really helped i don't think even just for 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 information security or any any kind of role i think it's the team bonding side mm. i think when when a man reaches a certain age a lot of his friends you don't see them anymore and having that team building ex- uh, scenario meeting other people who are in the same situation is massive. Yeah. Um, during our team, we've got a lot of people that are into the probably late 30s and onwards, mm-hmm. and they're all saying the same. It's making a massive difference to their, to them, making yeah. them feel like they belong, having having a team uh, focus. And for me, that's the best thing about this club that where I'm at. It's everybody wants to be there, and everybody is so friendly and wants to look after each other. Oh. And that's more. That's the most important part for me. But yeah, regarding security-wise, yeah, there's a massive amount of burnout. And I think playing the sports that I play gives me some way of maybe getting rid of those feelings. Maybe not doing it in an aggressive way that other people do, but actually burning them and focusing on something for a short time, which makes me a lot more relaxed afterwards. Mm. And my and I'll be honest, my wife's even said she can tell the difference of me since I've gone back to American football because I've only returned this year back to American football. And she said she can see the difference in me because I'm I'm now in that group of people. And yeah. also, good thing, good thing is American football is is a you can play being female, male, or mm. any other gender. It is we have a, a lady on our team who plays in the same squad as we do. There's wow. no issues. It's 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 just a sport where you can play no matter what. Team. I love that. We've um, added in a thing on a Monday, so it's move it Mondays on the afternoon. So well, you can finish work at four o'clock if you go and do some form of activity, exercise. Yeah. Um, and the um, to be fair, all the boys, the girls haven't joined in yet, have um, set up a football team side. So they all go play inside. I think it's six side. But the morale and the team bonding of that and when they come in on the Tuesday and all these stories to tell and jokes to have, you can just see it. It's just a really natural way for everyone to to get to know each other. And it builds trust, I think, massively between them. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's, you know, I, I see them as my, my mates now. There's no, there's no difference about it. If, if any of them got issues, I'll be there to help. And that's the whole point of the team building exercise for all having a team, American football team in our case. It, it's massive and people feel so much better being there. To zoom back to your career, obviously it wasn't your natural where you were going you thought you were going to go into police then you've got a bit of like engineering background and then you've landed yourself in a cyber security role um was there barriers like i guess barriers things that you had to learn on the way and was and, and was that supported by learning or was it mentors or how, how did that kind of come alive 
Yeah, I guess I was quite lucky because I came into the start of, you know, realistically the boom of IT. So I was doing IT when when everybody started going on the internet back in the, in the mid-90s. Uh, but prior to that, I had no, no real idea of, of IT. Um, I'd built networks for CAD and things like that. But the only reason why I got a com- computer at that point was because I needed to contact somebody who was living in another country. That's not, that person is now my wife. So, ah, so uh, hey, oh, okay. Is the for, reason why. Oh, so was it for dating reasons that you needed to contact? It was for dating reasons, yes, but oh. not, not in swipe left. Not only swipe left, swipe, swipe right thing. I did actually meet her first. And I, then I love that. The, 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 the way that you moved into IT was for love. So that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, so that, that moved me into IT. Um, but I bought a computer because I'm tight. I bought a computer that was broken and rebuilt it. So my engineering side came back into there. So I took it apart, read all the manuals and learned that. But because I was at the start of everything, I knew more than anybody else by the time I'd done this. Yeah. And as a result, I was building computers for other people and gradually progressing. So I was quite lucky, but I've also got a mentality that me uh, that forces me to learn. If I don't know something, I'll want to learn. Mm. And therefore... I was spending days and days and days learning to the fact that when I go out to the other country where my wife's from, I don't speak that language. And I would be going and sitting there doing training courses when everybody else was talking because Mm. I didn't understand their conversation. So what I'll do is do a training course and I'd come back and I'd go and get a certificate. And at the time it was all Microsoft, but then the progression moved into CEA, GCSA, uh, Cisco, and other kind of networking and security products as well. So, so you, you, you really... It was my drive. Yeah, huge drive, huge, huge self-development. Obviously, the next generation of people are coming up will have a different background, probably getting into into cybersecurity than yourself and, and, and going into these roles. What advice for kind of understanding the economic landscape and things that might arise coming into this role would you say that uh, is something that someone would need to be mindful of or 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 i guess things that you've learned along the way that you you can only really learn when you're in the job yeah i think the hardest part of anybody who's trying to get into the industry that's Mm. where the biggest problem i think the problem's not the people come into it i think it's the people that are recruiting a lot of people at the moment want to get the finished article and as a result they're not looking at those other skills that people have got doing Mm. different things okay and they're not they're not picking them up so what what people need to do is start to learn how those skills that they have can be transferred into cyber security disciplines okay and make and make sure they emphasize those there's plenty of things out there. So I run B-Sides Liverpool along with a few other people, including Jenny Radcliffe. Mm-hmm. And we we are, we have a yearly event that we help people and talk to people uh, regarding getting into security and give people the ability to be able to talk, uh, give talks and give their voice. And I think what I found from those kind of processes is a lot of people are afraid but don't understand where they fit. Mm-hmm. And I think they need to find what they like learn that as much as they can do and then make sure that they understand where that would fit in the security discipline so i've previously recruited somebody who worked from digital forensics for the police yeah and for me that is a great person to look for incident response Mm -hmm. because they're very very much uh able to document and look at the processes and and make sure that it's full of set procedure when we do incident response so I, i i think 
when that person came to work for me, they were saying, I don't have the skills. I don't, I've never worked in information security. But mm. they have because that is an information security role or what they're doing is part of information security. Yeah. We just need we just need as an industry to start looking outside the boundaries of the finished article and looking at the people and their skills. So for me, anybody wanting to get into it, find the discipline that you enjoy. Look mm-hmm. at what's what the disciplines are across security and choose something you want to you want to do. Because if I'm recruiting somebody, I'm gonna recruit somebody based on their want to learn, their ability to pick up things, but also their they want to be involved. Mm. Realistically, I'm, I'm going to choose somebody who's new to the industry, who has a drive. And if yeah. you don't have the drive, I'm going to, I'm probably not going to recruit you. Yeah. And that's where that's where the issue is. Find something you love. If you want to get into information security, get into information security because you could because you want to be an information security. Mm. Don't get into it because of all the other things that come with it, all the benefits that we know we get working in this industry. Mm. You know, get get into it because you really want to do it. Yeah. And I think there's there's loads of people out there that want to do it. It's just we got a system from our side. Yeah, and also them being able to see themselves in a role. Because like you said, if you are looking for a career shift and you can't work out how you fit, I think we've learned there's been so many um, skill sets or trans- transferable skills that people don't even realise until they're in it and they feel like they've got to have 10, 20, 30 years. But, you know, cybersecurity hasn't been around that long. So unless you're like yourself and you've naturally grown into it, it is quite a relatively new industry. So I think new ideas, fresh thinking, ways of tackling the challenge differently is really important to make sure that we don't become stagnant and new ideas come come into the frame. Uh, yeah, exactly. I've probably got about 10 more years in me and then I'll be retired. <laughs> There's an only scenario. Somebody's got to take over from me. And that that's the scenario. We got to get we got to find the right people who can step up and and take these roles. Yeah. And for me, we're not doing that. We we are missing a whole area of people that could easily come in and do would really want to do the roles. Mm. And we're missing them because we 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 want to finish article. And I think there's so many out there that we could we could use and mentor and make them better and mm. get them into the roles. And as as an industry, you know, senior information security people should look at, at mentoring people. Look at these organi- these entities like B sides and go and see the people that are trying to get into the industry. Help them and give them a mould to or mould them to the position that they can actually come and get these roles. Yeah. As in a role when you do find yourself quite high up making big decisions for your team, um, obviously there is lots of technologies on the market. There's lots of options and things for you to do what other hurdles do you face when you're making decisions um is it buy-in from board is it buy-in from your team is it legacy systems what things have you found have been all of the above i guess if your yeah. eye, all, eye contact but what were the things that you were commonly finding as like kind of boundaries and things that you were having to overcome in your role well, generally, the first thing I'm walking in is I'm dealing with the decisions that have been made from a previous person. And yeah. if that person doesn't understand security, sometimes we've got the legacy tools that are in place or the wrong decisions have been made. Mm. And I, I'm then having to try to make quick changes to cover those, but also try to work on a plan over the neck to do a 30, 60, 90, six months mm. kind of plan to make immediate changes. And but a lot of the budget may be picked up. So one of the previous roles I went to, um, I got told I'd have a certain level of budget. Not going to say the figures, but it was it was less than a million, but it was a reasonable amount. Yeah, I got I got told I had this budget. By the time I started, that budget had already been pre-sold. 
And as a result, I didn't have that budget. I had zero budget from that point. Yeah. And therefore, I had to deal with those that technology, whether that technology is the right technology or not. And you then fight in a battle trying to get the outcomes that you need to have to make sure that you can say we're secure or as close to secure as possible mm. using a legacy technology that you didn't actually have an input in. Mm. And I've, I've found that previously, that's one of the issues I've got of going out buying a technology just off buying the technology because a technology will come in and say, we can do everything. It'll have a nice pretty picture. Mm. But when you actually get to it, you've bought, spent all your money to buy something that, does one of the the areas that you need to cover yeah and realistically you want to be able to spread the butter across the across the board but what you've got is you've got one big massive area that's covered but everything else is left that's one of the biggest areas i've had and that's why i I don't like to buy the glowing you know the the product that's going to cost you a fortune because that that product maybe doesn't cover you across the board the way you need it is it then difficult i guess to get board buy-in because they feel like well we spent all this money you told me this tool was going to do everything lee why are you walking into the board and saying you need x y and z because i bought mr shiny six months ago is that quite an educational piece for people to understand yeah very much luckily in that scenario i hadn't actually bought it but that was (laughs) the point (laughs) but but obviously what what i've got to do is get across how we've still got areas that we still need to focus on mm. because they think that's a silver bullet and we all know there's no real silver bullet in security yeah but they they get told that so they can get such a big purchase mm. and get get the budgets for that so what we need to do is we need to focus on the areas that are changing and get make sure that we're reporting based on it's not a a static landscape things are going on and unfortunately sometimes that does require th- other people to be hit Mm. Uh, which is a horrible thing to no, say. No, 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 I, they've got to see it in real life, yeah, see the pain. Yeah, previous company I worked at, the their CEO only read Forbes, and as a result, everything that I had to tailor make any any kind of documentation I sent forward based on what's being reported Forbes. in Forbes because that was his audience, that was my audience, and that's what he was reading. Mm. And therefore, I had to make sure that I explain security based on that now luckily for me at the time a certain big airline come got hit and as a result the conversation suddenly occurred who would stand in front of the in front of the news if this happened to us and that changed the perception of that person because it would obviously be likely be him or that you know do they want to be the person yeah do they want to be that person in the front of the camera trying to talk and do it in a you know, not a great scenario. Like, I, I don't even think it should be me. I, I don't think I'm the person that should be, I should be dealing with the incident. Mm. I should be somebody else talking Yeah, there. I should be a speaker, yeah. But, yeah, but, although I am a speaker, but that's not the point. That's, yeah, but that's someone that's for the business and the PR train right. and how that's being managed and the other stakeholders Correct. and that sort of thing. I, I, I should be there trying to fix the problem. And my team fixing the problem and not actually being out or rating the problem. And, I always look back to North Hydro, the guy, the gentleman, I have got no idea what his name is, but I remember that he, when the North Hydro uh, attack happened, he just walked out on, on stage and just said, this is what we're doing, this is what we're going to do, and this is when we're going to come back to saying that's information. Mm. And that was it. That's all we need. We don't need somebody to fix it. We're talking to the public. Yeah. We need somebody to actually say, we're working on it, we're doing this, and we'll come back to you with next, next data. 
that shouldn't be me either because somebody will ask me a question I'll try to answer it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> At least you know where your but, strengths are, Lee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think, yeah, pri- priorities, getting that buy-in from the board is always hard when you've already spent the money mm. and trying to get to the next level of funding. But because it's never changing our environment, we've got to look at how things have changed. And the world is constantly changing. So when I worked at PZ Cousins, previous company I worked at before on the beach with my last company, mm. uh, during that time, COVID hit. Mm. So That's a different world. Yeah. So originally, my, my risk was based on activists. Essentially, activists getting involved with uh, somebody like Greenpeace mm-hmm. because they use palm oil in their products. And mm-hmm. obviously, the risk was there that they would tie up together and that would be a potential risk. So yep. we're most about uh, hacktivists. But then COVID hit. And for those who don't know, PZ Cousins, they're the people that made Carex. And they were making hand sanitizer. Right. And therefore, you can imagine being in a situation, my risk suddenly goes, what happens if somebody decides to attack us from much higher risk? Mm. So something like a criminal gang or potentially even nation state targeting us. And that changed my risk plan. And therefore, I had to put that across saying this is a different risk and I had to redesign things to suit. And that kind of thing would therefore say, actually, we're going to be targeted more by these people and therefore we need to get better protections because previously we didn't have that. If you want to stay where we are, we can do, but there's more likelihood to have this issue occurring and this would affect you in this way. So, so it's an ever-changing scenario. We have to take that into account. How do you prioritise though? Like how do you yeah how do you walk into that room and go oh okay there's loads of fires lots of them like what what's the biggest one what's the one that you take out first how do you manage that? It depends on how big the fire is I guess yeah. the first one if it, if it's a massive fire then I've got fire prioritised on that but if mm. we've got a lot of smaller ones mm-hmm. and maybe one that's middle middle size I try to get one that try to look at the tool that can maybe get rid of 80% of the fires mm-hmm. so that way my team can focus on the other one mm-hmm. so there is plenty of tools out there that can give you a good level of protection mm-hmm. without being one whereas yeah. I, as I said, as I said previously regarding walking to uh, walking to a company you're buying a tool and you spend all the money on one tool if I bought all that spent all that money on that one tool I've still got 90% of the fire is still going. Mm. So for me, and it depends on how big. Yeah, big it and is. It, you like it's not it's no one silver bullet, is it for the for, for the security? And and interestingly, we don't do this. We don't consider it the same in a physical environment, right? So if I think yeah. about the building that I am in, um, there are fire alarms, fire extinguishers, carbon monoxide checkers. There's um systems, uh, lock system doors. We've got fob. Um, check in check out there's cameras on the front of all the, the things there's a barrier into the building with a lock you know so for my personal security we don't think twice we don't think twice about it in our own house we we don't just assume the locks work most people have got like ring doorbells now and you know all different things to keep their in some sense our house more and more safe and you you do that but it's interesting in the cyber security thing everyone wants and i get it it's nice to say oh cyber security cool we've bought this one thing and then that's done tick but it doesn't work like that like it doesn't work in security if you were securing a festival or a, a no. mass you know a ship or yeah and that's why with the army we don't just have the army we have the sea covered and the air like you've got to have multiple tactics yeah Exactly. And as I said I t- about the risk regarding who's going to attack you, I say this to, often to people when I try to explain how security works. For my, in my mind, 
if I live in a in a where my my family comes from in the other country, not mm. my wife's family comes from in the other country, they were shocked that I locked my car doors. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they they didn't lock the front door of the house. No. And I, came, I I first drove out there and I put a big lock through the the steering wheel. I yeah. put an alarm on. They're all looking at me going, what are you doing? But that's because where I've grown up, because that's what, what I've learned. Mm. It's like when I leave my house here now, I'll lock my front door. Mm-hmm. I'll put the alarm on. Mm-hmm. But if I lived in maybe a poorer area or where there's more crime, maybe I'll have locked some windows or mm-hmm. I may have... No, I'd say that I don't, just in case anybody finds out where I live. Um, <laughs> we'll put his address on after this, everybody, yeah. if you want to get in. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, I've, li- I've lived in areas where people have got shutters on the windows. Yeah. And then I'll live somewhere where they've got barriers over the over the doors. And what, we, what we're actually doing, we're putting these kind of blocks in to make sure we're secure. Mm. But technically, what we actually need to do is think of what we're actually trying to protect. And most, most likely, we're putting that in a safe so therefore, going back to your analogy, your question regarding the fire, what is the most important to the business? Would the next thing I'd be looking at? Interesting. I like that because what you're saying is, if you've got everything that's really, really important in a safe, if someone gets in and takes your pajamas, your knickers, and your dressing gown, you ain't gonna be that stressed about it, are you? But if they take, no. I've never, yeah, I've never really thought about it that way. Yeah, that's far more sensible. And also, from an environment and a productivity. If everything's so locked down, it's a nightmare to get in and out your house. It's a nightmare to unlock. Have you got the right keys? Have you set the alarm? Oh, my God, the dog's triggered the alarm. Yeah. Whereas if you just, oh, I like that analogy. Yeah, wherever you've put it in the right place. So I guess when you're doing a risk analysis or being creative of how you might use budgets, you're always considering what everyone is kind of a term that everyone gets, like the the crown jewels of what is the business and how it's protected. Is that where you, yeah. you put your budget, your thought and all your energy yeah, to? Yeah, first thing, it's got to be what is most important to the business. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what we believe is most important, it's got to be what's mo- most important to the business. Mm-hmm. And that generally will be, you know, if you're working at a manufacturing company, the production line. That's the most important part. Right. Yeah, you have to make sure that's safe because everything else can go. But if you lose the production line, you're no longer creating any money. Yeah. You know, if you, if you're a sales company, the website, maybe if it's an online travel travel agent like it on the beach, the it's website's the website. most important. Mm. If they're not able to sell holidays, then the rest of it doesn't matter. Yeah. So that's the focus, and therefore that's got to be the priority. If that's on fire, that's getting fixed first. Right. Then, then you work your way across. But if that's not a fire, you spread it out. So yeah, you've got to understand the business and its needs first. Yeah. And that that's why I, when I look at my instant response plans, it'll be multiple based on what's being attacked. Is there ways then if you've 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 shown examples of where you've come in and budget's already been spent, maybe not prioritized in the right area, what does Lee do in that moment? Is it finding grants? Is it is it accessing other resources? Is it um, leveraging maybe the contract that you've got or whether it's negotiable? What do you, what does Lee do in that moment of, okay, the budget is not what I thought. I know what the problem is. I'm probably, uh, yeah, a bit bootstrapped here. How do you yeah, li- that? Yeah, literally all, all the above. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> and more again. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you look for other, other funding sources. So, that would be one of the first things I'm doing, trying to find out whether there's other tools I can use with mm. it, which won't cost me anything. Okay. So that kind of thing would come in. Um, I'd be looking at trying to find 
like tools that we may be paying for at the time we can get rid of. Mm-hmm. It's funny that I'm getting I'm getting alerts and ring now. Now we mentioned that about <laughs> the, ring the ring doorbell. doorbell. <laughs> it's going off. <laughs> yeah. But and then the dog will start back in a second as well. Oh, that, um, that's but, that's what happens in my life, so it's fine. But yeah, so so I'll be looking at what tools are in place, where there's any contracts that are running out that I can get rid of and yeah. then maybe gain a little bit of extra funding that I can use. So that kind of scenario would and be you're, useful. And you're quite comfortable because I've, I've had conversations with like some people too scared to take stuff out because they don't know what might fall down. How do you, I guess, how do you mitigate risk of like, oh, I know that's switching off and it's going to be fine. I think, I think luckily, because I've done infrastructure before, I've uh, got a good yeah. understanding of what's going on. Mm. But also, it's realistically, first of all, I'll be looking at the tools that are controlled by security because those are easier for me to take down. Right. Uh, I think then after that, it'll be looking at getting rid of the things that are not required as part of the business. So what you do is you you'd either shut it down and not actually destroy it. You bring mm. it down so then you can see the impact. And then if it does come on, then you'll bring it up. But realistically, you know, a lot of the organisations I've worked at, because of the size of them, they've got a lot of service catalogs in place. So you're already right. aware of what the most important systems are. At that point, you're looking at getting the stuff that's no longer running. Yeah. Or just been sat there and doing nothing and bringing no profit. Yeah. And then if, if we have to look at bringing those down, I'd be going to the business and saying, actually, you've got this here that's costing you this much. Mm-hmm. Now, if I, if I bring this down... It's gonna it's gonna allow us to buy this, which is therefore gonna bring a lot more protection into you. Yeah. And I'd have to play it that way. But but it could be a case of I go and say and go buy a stopgap solution and say, actually, okay, we need this for now, but we can run this once every three months, like we'll do maybe with a pen test. Mm-hmm. And that gives us coverage. And I buy that and say, actually, then I know where we are, and technically we should be okay in a better situation until i can get the next round of funding mm. so it, de- it depends on what what businesses and what kind of functions are in place but i'd have to review everything and that's why i generally don't try to make changes until i've been at an organization for about three months because okay. i need to understand the business and i need to know understand what's in place and what's being used before i can make those changes but obviously at the start i'm already looking at you know making changes to power fires as a start, mm-hmm. but not making any major changes until I've been there for three months. And you're three months in, you've identified things, you've identified gaps, whether that's people, a process or a technology. If you're trying to make an improvement of that or trying to find the thing to fix, how do you educate yourself on that? Is that networking groups? Is that listening to podcasts? Is that Do you go to Gartner? What do you, what's your kind of go-to? So our previous organizations were they would only buy tools from Gartner and Forrester. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I've had that ingrained in me that I must do that. But I also go out and speak to people that are working in the industry, mm-hmm. so my peers. For yeah. me, that's quite important because they've actually dealt with the product. Mm-hmm. They've dealt with it for like six months or 12 months or whatever it would be down the line. Yeah. And I'm getting their reviews. And I've also then uh, go out and find the product myself. I'll go and get demonstrations. I'll go and do POVs. Mm-hmm. Try to see how the product works and how it would fit in the in the organisation before I go and buy. Yeah. And I'd make sure I'd be testing multiple products. I wouldn't just be doing the first one up off the shelf. Yeah. But obviously, one of the biggest issues is the fact that we're doing that is the fact that you're saying to a load of companies, "I want to come and buy your product," and then they're thinking, "Oh, I've got a sale." But actually, I'm, I'm trying to fact find as well. So I think, you know, it, there's issues with doing the way I do it 
but also I want to get the best product for my company. Is it so, issues in the way that you do it or is it issues in how the market operates? No, I think it's the way I do it because the problem is, is uh, if I go and try the first product, mm. a lot of these products will say you try it for a month and I might be trying three different products. So that's three months down the line. You know, I've, I've, that person who's who's doing the sale with me is thinking, oh, I might get a sale. And they're pushing for the sale because they got their get their funding or they got mm. to get their they want to get their bonus. Yeah, so then I'm saying, well, you, I'm not going to come back to you for three months. And then at that point, I've then got to do a review and maybe have to go back and try to find additional funding from the business to be able to buy that product. That all ends up being six months to a year, and that yeah. that sometimes doesn't work for security because that product might have changed within that year. And also, I've still got a year before I've actually got the products in place to start allowing me to secure the entity. So. I, I think that is an issue we've got that I probably suffer from because I try to learn the product as much as possible and not taking that step until I know it's the right one. I like that though. Like you're not. I get. I get what you're saying. Um, but you are benchmarking three products to make sure that they're the right fit, the right thing for your team, that they sit with the ecosystem, the people that are going to work it. And then when you buy it, you're like, yep, no, I've, I've sanity text that and things where if you just done the first one and rush through it, it might involve that things aren't, I, I get your point. It, that's a slower process and things develop in that time. But there's, I think what I'm saying is as an industry, there's got to be a better way from a decision maker like yourself to be like, right, this is my pain and this is my problem. I will yep. need, I'm not quite sure what the solution is. So I probably need to, try three at the same time try before i buy test and then i know it's also better for the technology person that you're buying it from right because then you're yeah. going to sa- stay or potentially buy more licenses or you know it's like what well, yeah. it, you know it's nothing worse than someone buying something and like three months in being like this is not working for me this doesn't do this this doesn't do this i'm an unhappy customer and then also they don't you don't get their buy-in or they're in your I get it. No, I think I think your method is completely sounded. It's just how can you speed that up and make sure that everyone is in the picture and being like, right, this is what I'm doing. Um, and it could take a year. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes it's quite good when I've gone into a company when they've already got a product. They've already got a product. Mm. What I'm doing is I'm actually able to run a test while I've got a live product. Yeah. So so those kind of scenarios are quite good. So maybe it's not the right product, but if you're doing 90% of what I want, but I'm testing another product to see what it can do the 100%. Yeah. That's that's a bad scenario. The issue comes when you don't have a product doing that at all. Right. And therefore, you've got one year where you've not got those protections that you'd want to have in place. So that's where the problem comes. And that's where you've got to look at maybe outsourcing that product or outsourcing okay. the service to somebody else to then say, actually, you deal with that. And therefore, actually, I can focus on something else. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that, that, that is the way you have to do it because I don't need to then train my staff. I don't need to make changes to our services as much mm-hmm. because somebody else is doing that, running those products for me. And do you think that's the future of how people will buy? Because there's so many technologies on the market. I think so. I think there's going to be a lot more uh, organisations that are moving over to that kind of managed service provider right. scenario because, well, first of all, cost-wise, if you're having to go out and recruit a security professional, you know, by the time you bought some of these technologies, two, two, maybe three security professionals, mm-hmm. the cost of it was, you know, having to train and cover cover somebody a system for twenty four seven, you know, eight, ten, 
15, whatever it's going to be to your organisation, your products, and they've all got to be trained and they've all got to be upskilled and then maybe down the line a new technology is coming in. Yeah. You know, the, the ability to do that is a nightmare and that's why sometimes having a managed service provider, for me, works because I can say, actually, that technology is not working for me. Move it to another technology. They they would just move over because they'd have yeah. a separate team that's using that technology. Yeah. And for me, that works. So I've got I've gone managed service provider for my last two roles, and I think it works as long as you have the right contracts in place. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes like I did with that, not the last one, the previous one, not saying the name, no, yeah. although I might have mentioned it, uh, they already had a contract that had been signed seven years before. Right. And that contract didn't include security at all. So having okay. to make those changes became a nightmare because you then had to go through that process saying, I want to do that. Oh, well, that's a cost. Oh, I want to do it. It's a cost. So is that a big Whereas, recommendation then of going into a role? Is that checking your contracts and what you've got in place? Because sometimes assumptions are made. And, massive. Uh, right. Yeah, massive. For me, it's one of the first things you do. You've got to understand what's, what you've run in and what, you, what your rights are. First of all, to break out of that contract because it might be the wrong product. But second of all, you know, where you're going to be and how it's supported yeah. because they may not cover it. I've been in a situation where an external supplier has supported ourselves and they're doing a security function and they wouldn't look at an instant until, uh, sorry, an hour later. Mm. So that's a P1 would be looked at an hour later. Yeah. But then there would then send that ticket to a managed service provider who then won't look at that ticket for another hour. Yeah. So a P1 actually ends up being a P2 or a P3 mm. as a result because you've got too many people in the chain. Yeah. So, so yeah, you've got to have those scenarios. Look at your contracts, see what changes you can make, make sure that they're suitable for what you're providing and it covers the services that you have off them. Mm. Because if it's just a bolt-on function that they've added, maybe no one's even thought of whether they have to change the contract suit. And like you said, a big piece of that is, is, is stress testing your process, isn't it? Like how do are we did... um. Did a really interesting um interview um with someone on the podcast and one of their um response if um they had a major attack was that by default they would change every employee's password um and to get back onto your computer you just quite simply had to phone a, a landline and someone would sort it. What they didn't work out was that they had something like three thousand five hundred employees globally and the phone line could only take to- twenty calls at a time so actually by the time you got everybody back on wood was far too long but the only reason they worked that out is because they did a real life scenario everyone was involved then this whoever looked after the helpline was like this is great in principle but you do know that we can only take 20 calls so something yeah (laughs) yeah right it's like so so sometimes you put things in and you know practicality doesn't play or that's not how it would run out and and like you said unfortunately in this industry generally either the tools the processes or the people get put in place once it's happened um and, and that's so common I've, I've said one regarding a password reset was they actually reset everybody's password to one password so everybody had the same password and then oh, people would then be told to log in as that password and then change it. But then it'd be like, well, no, it's not that. They, didn't, they were forced to change it, but someone on holiday, they mm. wouldn't get that message until they came back, you know, from, from that holiday. So at that point, anybody could log in as that person because they knew their password. Oh, It's just like, it's just But, on, but on paper, that, that sounds sensible. 
until yeah, you we, like go through the scenario of it. That sounds like a sensible thing to do. Yeah, but CEO and always password. What can I do? Go and look at HR, finance, any of those kind of stuff. I could go and look at the password, and then the argument will be, oh, it wasn't me. You know, how would you know the person unless you got the security systems in place to monitor that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not a great scenario with <laughs> some of this password resets. Uh, Lee, you're an absolute fountain of information, but I appreciate I've nearly taken up nearly 50 minutes of your time. Um, so I feel like I probably need to, to catch up and speak again. Um, to close the podcast, um, why would you encourage someone to join the cybersecurity industry? Or would you not? No, 100% would. 100% mm. would. Yeah, for me, it's... I, I love it so much working in the industry. Yes, I've got my up and the down stays. You know, it all happens to us all. Yeah. But I love working in this industry. Um, for me, realistically, money's incredible. That's what, <laughs> but, this is the first person that's early, honestly said it out loud. No, amen to that. Yeah, yeah, money's not bad. Money, <laughs> money's incredible. The, the ability to be able to go out and speak to people is great because one of the things that I noted is that security people generally are social they generally want to do the right thing they'll always help you and yeah. that, that's great because i never feel like i'm on my own you know i can mm, i go so to nice. loads of loads of events around the country and every time i meet somebody i can just sit and talk and say we got this what we how we do this it's very much an inclusive entity oh that's so nice that me, you said that because some people we've spoken to find like it can be quite isolating in the in uh, the but that's great that you feel that way no, for me, I, I don't think I've ever had a situation where, you know, I feel like I'm being, you know, ignored or nice. being nobody wants to talk to me. I think think at times that, that gets a bit hard because I generally like to talk. <laughs> so, <laughs> but really, realistically for me, great industry to work in or great sector to work in, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And having the ability to produce something where you're taxing your brain and always learning is great. For me, I work because I want to learn and security is the perfect thing for that i'm always thinking new things all the time so for me get into it for the money but stay in it because <laughs> stay in it because you love it and that's the most important part for me do something you love do no matter what that job is yeah do it and if, if you like the idea of security get into it and you'll enjoy it thank you lee that was the perfect way to wrap up the podcast lee if anyone wanted to connect with you or invite you to be a speaker or to work with you in any way what's the best way to connect with you yeah best idea uh, best way is to connect to me on linkedin mm-hmm. i'm open to connections all the time uh but if not i'm talking at quite a few events future cyber uh Very Europe, exciting. in london speaking of that i'm also speaking at dtx um cyber leaders nice. later on uh, in november as well so Pick me up at any of those kind of conferences and come say hi. Say approachable, just say hello. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much. What a lovely episode. I really enjoyed securing your cyber future. Um, We had a big plan of what we were going to discuss and we probably didn't go into that in as much detail as we hoped. But Lee had so much fascinating information to talk about. It was great to hear about his outside activities, um, his honesty of why he was in the industry. Uh, and most importantly, I just think he's a really great person for anyone that's go- looking to get into or working in the industry to approach because he's obviously been there, got the stripes and uh, and done the work. So I think you've got the right strategies and mindset. Pretty much anything is possible. So 
I hope you found this episode valuable. Please subscribe, rate and leave a review. Um, If you think it's that great, please share it to your friends, your peers, your colleagues in cybersecurity field or looking to get involved. And if they are looking to navigate budgets, challenges during the economic downturns or really just trying to think, what am I going to do in financial year of 2024? please look to reach out. Um, We're obviously here to support and obviously Lee is a great resource for you to connect with. I hope you enjoy and I look forward to listening and speaking to you soon.